Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome inside episode 13 of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast that goes beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories, talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson. Incredible guest lined up today that uh, very excited to talk with this week. But before we get to that, I have to introduce you to our host. He is not only a 23-year veteran of the Novi Police Department in the Detroit metro area, but an incredible law enforcement trainer. I've been uh, behind the camera watching him uh, teach several times. I always get some nuggets of information from him. Welcome, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, man. How are you today? I'm excellent. It's uh, Friday, the day we're recording it, so it's close to the weekend, so I'm always great. You know, we were talking before we started recording about how you have a song stuck in your head right now. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of the way that I've been this week, because I've been so excited about recording uh, this particular episode. And I say I'm excited every week, but I'm really excited this week because I can't wait to get into the the, the stories that we have lined up today. Yeah, and uh, you know, not only am I the co-host for these episodes, but I also serve as uh, the show producer as well, which means I'm behind the scenes coordinating schedules and doing other logistical matters. And this week we ran into some technical issues trying to get on today's guest. And he could have easily said, sorry, guys, I'm busy, maybe some other time. But uh, instead, he's been extremely accommodating and uh, he's been working with us. And the past couple of days, we were able to get all of our issues worked out and he's going to be with us today. So it's really going to be a, a great episode, I think. Yeah, you know, it's uh, one of the best things about my job as a trainer is getting to travel around the country and getting to meet some of the incredible men and women that serve in our law enforcement field. That's how I came across this, uh, our guest today. I, I met him back in February when I was uh, doing a class out in Utah and super excited to talk to him. So what can you tell us about him today? Uh, over 25 years of experience as a law enforcement professional, became the chief deputy of law enforcement for the Davis County Sheriff's Office in January of 2019. After 21 years of service with the Salt Lake City Police Department, he is one of five officers honored for their bravery in the Trolley Square shooting in Salt Lake back in 2007. One of several incidents I'm sure we'll talk about today. It is our honor to have him. Please welcome to Between the Lines, Chief Deputy Andrew Obelad. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you for all the praise. I appreciate it. Andy, I just want to tell the listeners, if I could real quick, uh, how we met. You happened to be in a class that I was doing out at your your agency back in February. I don't even remember how we started talking, but you and I started talking. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, this dude right here, I've actually used stuff that he's been involved in in previous trainings at my agency and, and with command presence. And I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, I kind of got a little of a, a little bit dorky and almost fanish with you. But man, it was a pleasure to meet you. And I, I'm super excited that you decided to be here with us today. Happy to happy to do it. I, I like talking about the the experiences as I've, I've had um, because I feel like it will help. It'll help our our younger, newer officers that haven't been through some of the scary situations to help repair them and take their training seriously. So I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Well, well, let's go ahead and get started if we could. And I'm going to ask you a few questions here just because uh, I want to kind of get some background. Uh, so if my research is correct, February 12th, 2007 ended up being a pretty significant day in your career. But before we get to the incident that kind of defined the day, what I would kind of like to hear from you, what was that day like before the call came in? How had your day been going? The day was going good. I actually was uh, eating dinner at a Mexican restaurant right before the call came in. 
I was a sergeant uh, working on an east side of Salt Lake City. I had been a sergeant for about a year. I had dinner with a, a good friend, a coworker of mine, and I headed down to the, the city. I was at the south end, and uh, I was working my way up by the north end when a, a call came in for me to go do an arrest check, which was a, if officers make an arrest, the supervisor will go and do an arrest review. And so I was actually en route to that. I was about two or three blocks north of Trolley Square when uh, the call came in, the shots fired at Trolley Square. So I was already headed to this arrest review, but I was going to drive right by Trolley Square to go there. And so I just figured I'd stop by Trolley Square and see what was going on. And as I got closer and closer, the the updates on the radio just got worse and worse. And the first call that comes in, you hear shots fired. We get a lot of those calls and they, they don't really pan out to be anything or they could be fireworks or they could be, you know, a drive-by shooting or something. The, the updates on the radio were coming in and it was obvious to me that it was you know, a guy with a, an overcoat and a shotgun walking in the mall shooting people. And so it got bad really quick while I was driving there. And that's kind of one of the first things I wanted to touch on about this particular incident was, if I understand correctly, there was nothing that was going on immediately prior to it that gave you any indication that all of a sudden you're going to be involved in this significant event. Yeah, I, it was just a, yeah, just going through my normal day. And even once I arrived there, I, I, I drove right in front of the mall and parked on the south side and as i drove in front of it nobody was there i mean it was just happening but there weren't any fire trucks police cars any of that i was so close i I got there really really fast yeah but nothing nothing to tip me off what was going on besides what was coming on the radio and the reason why i think that's so important because you talked about helping younger officers is that there are a lot of people in this profession that think that hey you know what i'm going to have that little bit of warning so that i can amp myself up and be ready to go But the truth is the getting ready to go occurs well before the incident occurs in your training and your mindset. Obviously, you didn't have time because you and I both know, like you said, that a lot of times we get these calls and they turn out to be nothing. And that's kind of what we expect when we roll up on it. Yeah, I think that um, that's the hardest part about being an officer or a deputy is the uh, the monotonous, boring stuff that we do over and over again. I think it's hard to stay to have your, your razor edge sharp and ready because you do a lot of stuff that isn't that demanding and it is repetitive. I think that's why training is important. I think that's why training more than minimum requirement is important so that you're, you're, you're keeping your skills up all the time because it, it, the two that we may talk about today that I've been involved in, I had no time and then I had less time to get ready for, for these two, you know? Well, what you kind of uh, talked about there, uh, it takes me back to a quote that I just saw this week, and I don't know the exact thing, but Paul Howe said, never let your agency or organization define your ceiling, your limits with their training, because uh, quite honestly, you're never going to get all the training that you need or want from your agency. So how much are you willing to do on your own? Yeah, and I I agree. And I think we have great training coordinators and good programs and good rules to follow and guidelines, but nobody could have trained me for the the two calls that I had. And if I relied just on the training that I received, I wouldn't have been ready. They did the best job that they could to train me for everything. But if you're not, if you're not going up to the range several times a year, uh, working on your DT and those arrest control, whatever it is, how, how can you, expect to be ready for a a really bad fight where somebody's trying to kill you or your partner and that's their mission and that's their goal and they have a combat mindset 
if you're not training to, to have one, how are you going to, how are you going to perform? How are you going to do your job? In the book left a bang, uh, the authors talked about it's much easier to come down from that preparedness than it is to try to get up to it at the moment of truth. And, and I always thought that that was a great way of looking at the way we should train. So you pull up there to the mall, you're the first responder, the first one there. Uh, what did you do next? So I'm a new sergeant then, and I'm thinking in my head as I'm driving there and parking, okay, uh, we've done some training on active shooter. I need to get a contact team together. I need to figure out a staging area. I need to, I had a bunch of ideas in my head from training that we had done on things that I should do as a supervisor. And I parked and walked up to the, on the south side of the mall. There's double doors coming out and people are flooding out of the mall. No other cop around. People are just coming out in droves, running, screaming, coming out of the mall. And I can hear shotgun blasts coming through those doors really loud. And I look around and I think I'm, I'm here. I, I don't, I'm, I'm my team. I don't have a team I can send in. I can't stay out here and worry about a staging area. That guy's shooting people inside. I need to go in. I called out on the radio that I was there and I could hear other officers arriving, but they were arriving on the, the east side of the mall where it's a pretty big mall and they're, they're not close to me. And, and I know he's shooting people inside. And so I just, I think to myself, I'm, I'm going, I've, I've got to go in. I'll hopefully I can meet up with these officers inside because it was time to go. I, I loved how you put that right there. Listening to you describe is it's not just the, the shooting that's going on, but you have this mass of people that are running the other direction while you're trying to run in. You don't know the shooter could be uh, amongst those people right there. And there are uh, literally are a million things going through your mind. So you hear the officers on the east side and, and you recognize that I don't have time to wait for that team that perhaps would make things better. What did you do next? Um, so I went in. I actually asked some of the people coming out, where is he? And they said, he's upstairs. And, and I, as I went into the, the mall, right inside the doors, it's a two-story open foyer area, kind of a big courtyard area inside the mall. I looked forward to where I could see the balcony upstairs. And I thought, if he's upstairs, I'm, I'm a target. So I hustled to get through that courtyard to where I wasn't exposed got in there and then I just started walking towards the sound of where the gunfire was coming from. And it was, it's an old brick trolley station. Great for acoustics. Like you fire a gun in there and it is loud and it just echoes through the whole thing. So it was just this loud sound coming at me. So I just was walking towards the sound of the gunfire. I'm just trying to set the stage for, for our listeners here. You've got all kinds of people running out. And, and I assume that they're not being quiet while they're running out. There's probably a lot of them screaming and yelling. And then you add into that the, the gunshots. And then you, you have these acoustics that are causing echoes. And all those things go to make it harder for you to find the person that is causing the harm. Would you? Would, you, would that be accurate? Yeah, I, I didn't know where the bad guy was at. From what this person had said, and I think there were even radar reports, he was near the stairs or going up the stairs, but I was assuming he was upstairs. And I'm walking in towards the center of the mall. It only takes a few minutes for me to get there since the call, initial call has come in because I was so close. But I'm looking around and there's, there's hardly anybody around me. I mean, I'm in the center of the mall there and most of the people have either fled or locked themselves inside their stores. As I'm walking along, I can see, I'm looking straight ahead, but I can see off to my left, I can see it through a glass storefront, a bunch of people laying down on the floor. I'm thinking to myself, were they ordered down and they're just staying down or are they all shot? 
and I can't even take my eyes off of the hallway ahead of me to look over and see because I'm I'm worried about the threat that I think is ahead of me. But I know that there's people down on the floor in there. As I'm walking that way, I hear somebody yelling, OPD, OPD, hey, OPD. I'm from Salt Lake County in Salt Lake City, and we don't really have an OPD there. I mean, south of us, one county, there's an Orem PD, and north of us, there's an Ogden PD. But to me, I'm thinking, I don't know what OPD is, but I look up, and upstairs, I've come to another open area where it's a two-story open mall, and there's a guy up there yelling at me, OPD. He's got his gun out. He's dressed in civilian clothes, but he's not pointing his gun at me. He's pointing it straight ahead from him, but he's looking at me and saying, hey, and I think that's got to be a cop. And I say to him, where is he? I'm still wondering where the bad guy is. He points down to the floor that I'm on. He's down there ahead of you. And I think, oh, great. you know. And he says, I'm on you. And I wave like this, come on down, come, come to me. So he runs down the mall to the escalator or the stairs behind me, comes up on the same floor behind me. I'm thinking, all right, I'm no longer a lone guy here. It's a two-man element, right? I got, I got a guy with me. I got a team. And right as he gets to me, bad guy comes out ahead of me out of the store. It's called Pottery Barn Kids, but it's a, a store just ahead of where I am. And I'm in already, and I, I have time to bring my firearm from already up to, to target the guy. And I move forward about five steps. Bad guy comes up, comes out of that store, I think shoots at us, and then darts back into the store before I can even acquire a target. I move forward to the corner of that store to deal with him. And I think Officer Hammond, the off-duty officer, is right there with me. Unbeknownst to me, when, when, when we saw bad guy pop out of the store... I think it was fight or flight for Officer Hammond because he took off. He took off running back. And there's a pretty good video of it where you see him just run. Um, I move forward and he just goes back. I didn't even realize that was happening. I was so focused on the suspect moving back into that store. And there's the door that he went into. 90 degree corner from that door was a window. I moved up to that corner and I could see through the window that he was not going further into the store. And I could hear him right inside there through the door. So he was close to me, but I couldn't see him. So I yell out, you know, Solly, please drop your gun. Do it now. In my big boy voice, of course. <laughs> and uh, he yells back, fuck you, and starts shooting it through the wall at me. And I'm looking at the wall thinking, what's this wall made of, right? And I can't see him through the window, but I'm, I'm kind of doing this. And I'm looking through, trying to look through the window and peeking at this corner to, to see if he's coming out of the door. And at that point, Hammond tells me, I've got the door. So he, came, he he circled back. He ran. I think he got a little ways down and realized he's not in a uniform and someone's going to shoot him thinking he's the bad guy running around with the gun. I'm not sure, but he came back and came up behind me. And he's probably 10 feet behind me and 10 feet off to my left. And he had a better angle on that door going into the, the store where the suspect was. He says, I've got the door. And he he's, returning, he's shooting some rounds at the bad guy through that door. All of his rounds are hitting the door jam around the, it's like a, you know, a mall door. It's a big open door. I've got the bad guy shooting at me and it sounds like it's going to blow my eardrums. It's so loud. It is loud. And I've got officer Hammond off to my left shooting a Kimber 45 and it sounds like a cap gun. It's like pop, pop. Like I know he's shooting. He shoots three rounds. When people talk, I teach this. They talk about auditory exclusion. He wasn't a threat to me. He was on my team. I was fine with him. I'm not wearing hearing protection, right? I hate being at the range when someone's got a 45 next to me. I wear earplugs and hearing protection and it's still too loud when someone's got a big gun next to you like his gun and it's just i can barely hear it but i hear this boom boom coming from the threat 
which was very interesting to me. It's such an important thing to understand what happens to a human being, not just a police officer, but a human being when something stressful like this happens. You alluded to the the auditory exclusion, you know, the selective hearing. You know, we laugh about it when you're married. You know, your wife says, "Hey, you've got selective hearing. You don't hear what I'm saying." But but it, it's a defense mechanism that the body has. You described it perfectly. But then would you also agree that perhaps it was a little bit of tunnel vision because you said, "Yeah, I didn't even recognize that this other officer that's there." with me isn't with me anymore because he's not a threat to me. The guy in front of me is a threat and that's where my focus has to be. And I think a lot of a lot of people in this job, they don't know that. And when it happens to them, I, I think they're ashamed or, or, or they're concerned that maybe they're not cut out for this job just because they don't know how it's going to affect them. Yeah. And I, I think that's why stressful training, realistic training scenarios are invaluable put the stress on people and have them work through those situations when it's a more of a sterile environment so they can see how they react. But yeah, I mean, I don't know who you could put in that situation that wouldn't go through that stuff that I was having. And I think, I think it was my body keeping me alive, right? Absolutely. Putting all of my, all of my energy and focus onto what was happening in front of me. And I'm sure my eyes were bigger than they've ever been. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Remind me when we get to that point, but I know I had tunnel vision because I could see my rounds going through the glass, which is kind of strange, but time slows down and you can see things. And I, I remember thinking at this point where I've got, I've got that auditory exclusion going on. I've got him shooting at the bad guy, bad guy shooting at me. I see a couple of other officers. A lot of officers are working their way into to us the same way that, that I did. A lot of very professional officers have formed into teams and they are working their way in and we're putting a pinch on the bad guy. Uh, I don't know that. I'm, I'm assuming that's happening because when I go in, I'm by myself, but on the other side of the mall, they're forming teams and they're going in. And I see a team of two guys coming at me and I start yelling at them because I'm afraid they're going to walk in front of the window to me and the guy's going to be able to pick them off through the window. So I tell him, stop, stop. He's right here. They end up going through a doorway to somehow get into that room where he is. And then there's another team of officers, Sergeant Sharman, Josh Sharman, and Brett Olson and uh, Dustin Marshall formed into a team of three. They're actually on the SWAT team, but it wasn't a SWAT call out. They're just at the police station getting their shift going when the call came in and they, they hustled down to Charlie Square. They parked on the east side of the mall and there's a few entrances to the mall that aren't official entrances. And some of the stores have a store that will go just to the outside, like a back door, but it's actually not a like a clerk back door or a, a shipping back door. It's a, it's a regular back door where customers can come in. They came in a customer door like that to the Pottery Barn kids, not knowing that that's the, where the bad guy was just trying to get into the mall. And it was probably the hand of God getting them in the right place at the right time. All they know is they came in to that store and they hear shooting and they think bad guy is shooting at them. So they strong while they get up on the wall and realize, okay, he's not shooting at us. He's actually shooting at me <laughs> and Hammond. Right. The other direction, his back is to them where they came in and they work their way up through the, the store, come around a corner and start firing at him in the back. He's got a backpack full of ammunition and some of some of those rounds go right into his backpack. But some of the rounds go into his back, his hip, his legs. He spins around because of the assault from behind from these officers. That's the first time I see him as I see him. He, spin, he spins around and out into the window I'm looking through. So I, I shoot two rounds right through the glass. I'm right up on the glass. I shoot my two rounds and I see the bad guy go down. I yell over to Hammond. I say, cease fire. I'm going, I'm going in. 
and I hustle around and go into the door where, where the bad guy went in to the store. And as I go in, he's laying on his back and he's got um, red shotgun shells all the way around his waist, all the way around his belt. And I see those as I'm running in and I think dynamite. That's the first thing I think is he's wired. This is a bomb for just a second. And when we say like, I'm, I'm sure my eyes were really big and it takes me a second to realize, no, those are shotgun shells. He's laying on his back. He's dead. And as my focus comes out, I see several officers in that room too. And I'm thinking, where'd you guys come from? You know, I didn't even know they were in there, but let me back up right before that. Or as they start to engage the subject there, I hear all this automatic fire. Boom, 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 boom. Coming from the threat place, the same place where I was hearing the threat shooting at me. And I'm, and I'm thinking, how many bad guys are there? That's not just one guy shooting a gun at me. That's several guns. And that's them lighting him up. But I don't see them. I don't know what's going on. I just hear all this. I'm like, holy cow, how many bad guys are there? Right before that, during that same time, I'm thinking, this is taking forever. That's what's going through my head. This is taking a long time. And if you go back and put a stop clock on it, it's like three minutes. You know, it's not a long time. It wasn't some two hour standoff. It was it was fast, right? But in my mind, as I'm working through this issue, I feel like time slows down. And I don't know how to explain that except to say, you are so hyper-focused on what you're doing that it feels like time stops. And when I shot through the glass, I could see, I could see the bullet going through the glass. I could see the round kicking out. I don't really notice that when I'm up at the range, you know, I just, I don't see those things, but that day I did. I, I don't know how it's been for you, but two of the most comforting books that I ever read, uh, number one was On Combat by uh, Dave Grossman and then Deadly Force Encounters by Alexis Artwall, because they describe just those things that you were talking about. And it's nice knowing, you know what? I'm not alone. There are other people. Yeah, I'm normal. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it right there. I wish people understood all of the stuff that is going through your mind when this is going on. You described the other officers. You don't know they're there. I mean, it's coming from the direction of the bad guy. It would be reasonable for you to believe that those are rounds coming from the bad guy, even though it's coming from cops. And there's just so much to be considered in this complex situation. And you're one guy. You're one guy that can do that. So I, I want to ask you about Officer Hammond, if I could. You, you said he's in plain clothes. Yes. And uh, he's uh, he's from another agency. He's from another agency. He's there having a Valentine's. Everybody's there doing Valentine's shopping. It's two days before Valentine's. He's there having a dinner with his girlfriend. Um, maybe they're married. I, I don't remember. But at any rate, it's upstairs at that same mall, the Rodicio Grill. It's like a Brazilian steakhouse. Great place. They've just finished having dinner and he takes her over to the restroom upstairs and he hears what he thinks is construction noise. He hears the shooting going on and it's echoing through the mall and he just thinks that's somebody building, somebody doing construction. It's so loud that he just kind of walks up and leans over to the edge and looks down to see what, what they're building or what the construction noise is. And he sees a guy in a trench coat walking around with a gun um, and realizes, oh, this is not construction. This is active shooter. Tells his wife, who happens to be a dispatcher, go back. He draws his gun and tries to engage with this guy, calls out to him. And at, at one point, the suspect actually shoots up at Ken Hammond um, while he's up there. He's a target for a little while. Then he goes into another store and is doing some shooting. And then that's when I come walking along and he sees me. And what, what I want to put out to our listeners is that we don't always get to choose the fight. There are many times the fight chooses us. It chooses the place and time. And, and again, we talked about it on our, our podcast before. 
We want our people ready. We don't want them paranoid, but we want them ready if the fight does choose us. And I commend uh, Officer Hammond for getting involved in something that, quite honestly, uh, there there are a lot of people who would have not done a thing. Well, and I, I think it's great that he got involved. I think it's great that he had his uh, his weapon with him when he was off duty. Um, and he was he was able to do something instead of wish he had brought his gun. Absolutely. Something else that jogged my memory while I was running through this scenario, I can I can hear the we have a dispatch recording of that day. It's been it was 2007. So if you do the math, how many years ago was that? I can hear it today. Beep beep beep. Shots fired. Charlie Square. And my heart rate goes right up. Even just talking about it with you guys, I think it's therapeutic. So I don't mind talking about it. One thing that I want the, any new officers or officers that are newer in the profession to, to know. I mean, after I fired those two rounds, the first thought I had was, oh, crap, I just fired two rounds. I just shot my gun. That's what I thought for a second. You, you have a lot of thoughts, but that's what I thought. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Why would I get in trouble? I got a guy walking into a mall killing people, and I just did my best to stop him. Why would I ever get into trouble? But, but what comes into your mind? I've been in a shooting. You know what I mean? And I, I was a sergeant at the time. But that's, I think, a nor- another normal reaction that you have. Like, ugh. to keep going, I uh, after the bad guy went down, and I saw the other officers were in there. I remember saying, handcuff him. I ran back to see that store that I had walked by before because I knew all those people were laying there. It's called Cabin Fever, and it's the store where most of the victims were shot. He went up and shot him point blank in the head. Uh, there were a few people that survived in there, but when I, I got back there, I just saw them all laying there bleeding and dying. I, I thought everybody was dead. But about the same time, somebody comes across, either across the radio or somebody there, second shooter, second shooter. And I look up and I think to myself, we've got a two-story building that I'm in, a second shooter. We dumped one. What kind of a crazy scenario is this? You know what I mean? How can I? How can we deal with this? How can we get the fire department in to treat these people when we're not even secure? We got another shooter to deal with? And Sergeant Sharman was right behind me. He was a SWAT sergeant. He's one dialed-in individual. He just took charge. I, I was done. I was like, oh, I don't know what to do here. I, you know what I mean? It was too much for me. And he just says, let's cordon off this area, put cop here. We had a bunch of cops all of a sudden, you know, they're all over. Put some cops here, some cops here, so we can cordon off this hallway. We can get the fire department in to, to get to these victims. And I'm thinking, great. Um, Hammond's there. Somebody tells Hammond, you stay with him with this, you know, with a uniform. And he says, let's get on some teams and go find that second shooter. I get onto a, a team to go and clear the mall to look for the second shooter. So I remember being upstairs, going through the mall, uh, going to a... It's called the Desert's Edge Brewery, and when we're clearing it, and it's for, for the most part, it's empty. I get to the walk-in cooler, and it's locked, and I can hear people inside there. And I, I knock on it. I pull on the walk-on cooler. I tell them, come on out, police, and they're not coming out. <laughs> so I pull hard enough. I break the handle on this cooler, get the door open, and there's like 10 people inside this walk-in cooler, the back of the restaurant, and they don't want to come out. I've shown them a patch come on, police come out. So they come out and there's kids and there's adults. I imagine it was just a couple of families, but I don't know, but it's kids and adults. I get them out to me and I've got this little group of kids on me and and families on me. And I I walk them over to the hallway out of the restaurant and down to the stairs. And I, I see a security guard there. I don't know where the security guard was, but I see him now. I don't think they're armed even. I tell the security guard, can you get this group of people down to the parking lot? Because I want to keep clearing with my group that we're clearing the, the building up here. 
And the security guard's like, yeah, I can do it. And the people look at the security guard and they look at me and they're like, no, we're not going with the security guard. They're not going to go with him. I'm, I say, okay, come with me. So I walk him down the stairs. I have to walk him down the hallway first and then down the stairs to go out. And as I'm walking with the, the kids and the parents, I'm, I'm looking at these kids that are just crying and scared and they think they're going to die. Uh, those kids are about the same age as my kids. To that point, I was just responding. I wasn't upset. I was just dealing with the issues that were presented to me. But that's when I got upset, when I saw the effect this deranged 18-year-old kid had when he started shooting up the mall on people, and the terror that he inflicted on these people. Um, I got them down to the to the parking lot, they were happy. They, they were there. I don't know where they went. You know, if I was thinking, I'd been like, we need, you know, whatever, whatever you do when you have witnesses and victims. But I just, I got them down and went back up and ended up clearing re the rest of the mall. And at some point we cleared a lot of the mall. We never found a second shooter. I think it was probably officer Hammond upstairs that people had seen and called in because he had his gun out. I imagine. I think a lot of times you get a second or a third shooter in an active shooter that is a phantom shooter. If you have two or three, it's even worse, but I think that's pretty common, but it calmed down a little bit. So I called my wife. I was, I just figured, you know, this thing's gotta be on the news. People have gotta be hearing about this. And there were cops coming, you know, after a few minutes, there were cops coming from the whole two or three County area. Like when I finally walked outside, there were cops standing shoulder to shoulder, like all the way around the mall. Um, so I call my wife up. Hey, how's it going? You know, good. I've been in a shooting, but I'm okay. <laughs> um, I figured she would have heard about it, seen it, but you know, we don't always have our TV on all day long. She doesn't really watch a lot of TV. So she hadn't heard about it. And all I did by calling her was make her really nervous. You know, I, I probably shouldn't have called her, but at any rate, she would have found out at some point, you know, I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine. And I keep going around and clearing them all. Um, usually when you're in a shooting, you don't do that. You, uh, get escorted by your supervisor back to the police station and they start whatever protocol that they have. Um, this was a little bit different. Um, but finally I, everything settled down there and I walk out to the command post and I run into the buddy that I, the sergeant, we're both, you know, been sergeants for about a year. He's like, where have you been? You know, and I tell him, Oh, I was inside. What? I'm like, Oh yeah, I was, I was inside. I was, uh, I was inside. I, I, I was with the shooter what are you doing here? You know, he, he actually drives me over to the police station. And uh, then I got to start that whole thing. As I was doing my research, it appears that the result of, of that attack was five killed and four wounded. It always bothers me a little bit when I see the wounded part, because that number doesn't address the families that you came in contact with in the cooler, because they may not have a physical injury, but they certainly were wounded as a result of that attack. And it doesn't take into account your wife and your kids that also suffered as a result. Before we move on, I want to say thank you for your willingness to go in there and, and do what needed to be done under extreme circumstances. I, I told you when we first met how much I admire you, your, your bravery and your courage. Before we move on, I just want to say that real quick. But this horrific event for law enforcement doesn't end when you leave the scene. Because you do have to go back and you have to start the protocol, you know, the interviews and, and given statements and that type thing. And then we have to worry about, oh, man, it's going to go to the prosecutor. What's the prosecutor going to do? Is it going to go to a grand jury? That, that process goes on for law enforcement. You were cleared ultimately, 
because it obviously was, you were justified in doing what you did. And as you went along your career, you ended up getting promoted to lieutenant. Sooner or later, though, you make the decision that the time has come and it's time to retire. Uh, what can you tell me about the end of your career with Salt Lake City? If I can, let me back up really quick just to say you talked about how other people were affected. And there was a cloud over the whole state of Utah after this thing happened. People didn't want to go shopping. People didn't feel safe. I know that active shooter situations are pretty plentiful these days. Back then, there weren't that many. I mean, Columbine happened and there had been a few here and there. And I, I tracked them for a while after the one I was involved in because I was very interested in them, but it was devastating. And one positive note, I, I got letters from people that were at the mall. I still run into the people. They meet me, they find out who I am, and they say, I was at Trolley Square that day. Thank you. Thank you for going in and saving my mom or, or making sure that I got out okay, whatever it was. And I, I got letters and there were a lot of very thankful people. As I got to it was about 2017, and I was I had 21 years on with Salt Lake City. I'd become a lieutenant. I'd been working in the downtown shelter area for three years as a bike sergeant there, and then again for a couple a year as a lieutenant supervising that same area. I decided I was ready to be done with law enforcement, and I started applying other places, at least done with Salt Lake City. And I got a job to go work with uh, Utah Jazz, the basketball team, as their team security to travel around with them. And I thought, okay, that's great. I'll just, I'll stop being a police officer and I'll start being a team security guy and work for the jazz organization for several years. And that'll just be the, what I do now. I had interviewed with them. I'd actually started working part-time with them, going on a few road trips because the season had just started. While, while that was going on, I had a retirement date with Salt Lake City and I had scheduled it out. I had announced that I was retiring and the day I was working my last week, and this was probably like a, a Wednesday or a Thursday, but I had, we worked four tens. I had, this was my third shift and I would work one more shift the next day and then I would be done. Tomorrow would be my last day, but on the day before I'm working as a watch commander, a lieutenant in Salt Lake City, listening to the radio, the police radio, talking on the phone to a citizen who wants to complain about officer driving. So one of the most mundane, boring things we do, right? So a citizen complaint. I hear an officer say over the radio, um, have my back step it up. And that's pretty common. And then you'll hear the back get on and say, or the dispatcher will usually say, you know, Bravo 232 or whoever, did you copy that? And usually the, the backup officer will get on and say, yeah, I'm two minutes out or I'm arriving or something. Um, I listened. And after the dispatcher said, do you copy? There was dead air. And so I thought, well, I don't know where the backup is, but I'm, I pulled up the call on my MDT and I could see he's on a unwanted mail call at a, like a massage parlor or something. And I'm about three blocks away again. I'm just sitting in my car at the police station, but I'm, I'm not far away. So I think I'm going to drive over there and just, I don't know where the backup is, but I'm close and I, I can help out if they need. So as I'm getting, I'm driving there, I hear him saying, over, he's talking over the radio saying, okay, the guy's, the guy's walking, you know, down the road. He's not listening to me. Then he says, I've taser deployment. And right as he says that, I'm, I'm just pulling into the driveway where it's happening. And I see the, sus I can't see the suspect, but I can see the officer standing at the back of a parking stall behind a Jeep. And he's got his taser out. And I can see the, the lines, the wires going from the taser up to the front of the Jeep. I can't see the suspect. So, I, and he's just said taser plane. I was like, okay, tase the guy. And then I see the suspect come running full speed from the Jeep. He was up in the Jeep, but I didn't know that. 
came running out and just punched the officer dead in the face and just kept punching and kept punching, assaulting the officer. This is happening while I'm trying to put my car in park and just get out of my car and I, I run to where they are. Uh, officer Lovell has, he saw me pulling into the parking lot. He knew I was there. He decided to try and run to create some distance away from the suspect and give me time to to get there to help engage. And so I get out and I'm, I'm running towards them. The suspect stays right on the officer. I mean, he could have, he could have run the other way. He could have given up. He could have done a lot of things, but he stayed after the officer trying to, to assault him. I think trying to kill him as I'm running, I'm thinking, okay, it's a, it's a physical fight. And I'm trying to get my OC, my pepper spray out of the, my duty belt, because right now it's, it's just a physical fight. As I get closer to them, this is over, I don't know, a few seconds, I get closer to where they are. And I I see that the suspect has officer levels baton and he's hitting him with it. And so I'm switched to guns, right? I get my gun out. I, I come up on him. I'm yelling, Salt Lake, police stop, police stop. At first, the suspect doesn't even know I'm there. He's so intent on beating the hell out of the officer. Then he sees me and the officer kind of falls down and kind of crawls away, kind of like a bear crawl. But his leg's hurting and it's not working. All I know is the officer kind of falls down out of my sight picture, which is good. And the bad guy, the suspect, turns at me. I'm saying, police, stop. But what I'm thinking is, dude, can't we just work this out? Like I'm retiring tomorrow. And that's really what I'm thinking. And any of you who have gone through stressful stuff or whatever, you're having a lot of thoughts. But my thought is, can we just work this out? I mean, I've got my gun out. I'm yelling, please stop. But I'm thinking, put your hands up. Let's work this out. I don't want to be on admin leave. I want to retire tomorrow. That's what I want. He starts running at me and he's holding the ass like a Louisville slugger, like a baseball bat. And he's running straight at me. I back off, not wanting to shoot him. I, I feel like I've given him every chance. And then he's too close and I, I, I put several rounds into him. And he doesn't go down. I've gone back and counted. I actually fired 10 rounds. I thought I shot about five, but I've never shot rounds so fast. I shoot a group of shots, I think three or four. Um, I think it was actually about five or six. And I'm so close to him, he actually is able to reach out and hit me with the asp in the arm. That's how close we are right as I'm firing. But I didn't, I didn't feel it. I had so much adrenaline. I didn't know I got hit. He doesn't go down. He's just wearing a T-shirt. And I think to myself, body armor? Why is not it going down? I mean, I, I'm two yards, a yard. You know, we do training at three yards on the range. I'm closer than that. I'm so close. I have to like step around him and he doesn't go down. And I'm thinking, why doesn't he go down? Because I just filled him full of bullets, close range, good shots, tendering. I just tendering this guy five or six times. I think in my mind, again, I think time slowed down. I thought a lot of time was going by, but really it only did a few seconds because my next barrage of shots, if you listen, is only a few seconds after the first group. But I shot those because I thought, he's not going down. Boom, 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 boom. I shoot like four more and I wait a second and then he goes down. But when I when I talk about time slowing down, that's what I mean. I mean, time, it was only a few seconds, but in my mind, because your mind is working so hard and, and working through all of this stuff, it seems like a lot of time's gone by, at least for me, but it, it really hadn't. He goes down, I put my gun in the holster and I look around and there's a lady standing right five feet from me pumping gas, just crying. Like there's three or four people standing at the gas pumps. And I just, I, I look around and there's people coming from everywhere. When I go back and review the video, it's been about 20 seconds from the time I put my car into park until I'm putting my gun in my holster and like, what just happened? It was that fast. I can't believe how fast it was. Like I didn't have time to do a price check. I didn't have time to put on a vest. I, you know, I, I was wearing a vest, but when you talk about you don't have time and you can't pick the battle, like I went from... The most mundane thing I do as a watch commander, sitting there talking to listen to a citizen complain on the phone, 
shooting a guy to save a guy's life in, you know, a couple of minutes. I used that video as part of training in my agency, trying trying to demonstrate for them how quickly something can turn, not not only from your perspective, but also that for first officer, because it get kind of a suspicious person type call at the salon and the guy walks away from him. And then all of a sudden it goes from zero to 60 in a matter of seconds. And the decisions that had to be made, I don't think people, including some of our young officers, understand how quickly these things can turn from nothing into everything. You and I, I think we talked at the class about trying to speed up that maturing process for our people so that they can make those decisions. I'm speaking for you here, but I can almost guarantee that when you woke up that morning to go to work, you weren't thinking, hey, you know what? Today is going to be another one of those days. I would be willing to bet what you were thinking, man, one day in a wake up, one day in a wake up. That's all I got to do to be out of this place. But that's not the way it ended up. What happened after that event right there? How, how was it handled? The officer had a broken nose and I thought his orbital sockets were broken. There was so much blood coming out of his face. The reason he fell down and couldn't walk was he broke his, one of the bones in his leg is probably the smaller one, but he ran to create distance. The bad guy stayed on him. He's a big guy, the, the bad guy. The officer says that he stopped and turned. And as he did, bad guy was like trying to tackle him. And he's the officer spun. I think that's what broke his leg. If you can believe that. I thought maybe it was a bad guy hitting him with the ass, but maybe it was, but I don't, I'm not sure that's what happened. Cause I asked him after, did he hit you with the ass? He said, no, he was trying, but he didn't hit me. I'm like, did he hit you in the face? Well, he hit me in the face, but he punched me. It wasn't the ass. Man, I saw him holding the ass and swinging. I thought he was, you know, really beating the officer. But afterwards we have a conversation. He's just laying there on the ground. Here's an interesting thing that happened that I didn't realize until a while after. When I'm a watch commander, I'm over the whole city, but we have two different radio channels going on. We have a, a east and a west side, channel one and channel two. Well, I like to monitor both and your radio will scan, but I don't really like scanning because you miss stuff. You guys are probably familiar with that in law enforcement. Well, when I'm in the car, I have the radio on my hip on channel one, the west side, and I have the radio in my car on channel two, so I can hear everything. And when you're responsible for everything, I mean, that worked for me. I, when I got there, I called out on the car. I'm, I'm arriving at the Maverick or whatever, so they knew where I was. After I go through this 30-second horrible situation, I call out on the radio on my shoulder, out of my car on channel one, but I don't think about it. And I say, shots fired, officer down, suspect down, roll medical, and the channel one dispatch. And everybody on channel one over on the west side of the city is like, what's the lieutenant doing? What's going on? But I didn't realize it. All I knew was cops started coming from everywhere. Like they put it together fast, the dispatchers, because they had my location and they got medical there and cops there. But that kind of stuff, like, you know, I didn't even think about it. Like I, I was so busy dealing with whatever I was dealing with. Like I couldn't think to switch back to the right channel to, before I called out to say what was going on. Again, it's part of being human. You know, yeah. there, there, we have limited capacity uh, in our brains, especially under stress. And what's important now has to be taken care of first. And switching radio channels isn't that thing. Well, I was a lieutenant. And usually the lieutenant's the one who shows up and will handle a, a critical incident scene, right? I called up the captain and said he was at a football game with his family close by. And I said, can you come down here? What's going on? I just shot a guy. <laughs> I need someone coming down, down to run the scene. And so he came down. We're getting loaded up into the ambulance and we get officer level loaded up into the ambulance. I don't know if you guys remember, you might, I mean, this was like nationwide news. We had a, a dip or an officer that arrested a nurse up at the university. Yes. Nurse Wobbles, like Wobbles was her name, but it was a great big fiasco, but that happened like 
two or three weeks before this in 2017. And we're trying to decide where to send our officer. Which hospital should we send him to? And in Salt Lake City, there's several hospitals right around us. And one of them is the University of Utah. And we're like, where, where should we send him? And somebody's like, not the U, you know, because because what had just happened. I mean, they were still pretty, it was still pretty raw up there at the U, the relationship between nurses and, and cops. It's better now. So then we, we drove down to the trauma hospital that's down in Murray, which is, you know, like 10 minutes away. But it was just funny. It made me laugh. And then I looked down at my, I, I brushed my arm like this didn't notice it. And I, and it really hurt. So then I looked down at my arm and I had this huge lump on my arm and he hit me with the ass right on the bone of my forearm, but it was just this huge wound. And I didn't even know he hit me. I looked down like, what is that? I'm thinking, did, did some bone or bullet fragment come off and hit me? But I don't think that's what it was after thinking about it. I think, I think he was able to land one good, solid strike on my arm as I was engaging him. So just interesting. I didn't feel it. I had so much adrenaline, I didn't even know I got hit. That adrenaline dump is also part of our survival mechanism. But once that adrenaline, it leaves your body, people don't understand. I mean, you can be fully on right now, engaged in the fight, and then the adrenaline goes away. And, and it's like, man, I need a nap. You know, yeah. I, I, just, oh, yeah. I, just need, I just need to sit down <laughs> because every, everything's gone. Every ounce of energy is gone. I, I want to say that the agency that you're with now, I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting your training coordinator fantastic dude. And and if I could say that there's uh, somebody who's getting his people ready for what they might encounter, uh, it's him. But if you could look back after all these years of service and you could go and you could speak to, to a police academy class on day one of the police academy, knowing what you know, having, having been through it, been there and done that, what would you encourage those young people to do as they come into this profession? Well, I get to teach. Um, I teach at our police academy at a few different satellite academies. I teach a mental preparation course and a few other courses. So I get to talk to them. I even talk to high school kids and interns, but I'm always worried about scaring them because those are those are some scary situations. So I end up telling people, we'll teach you what you need to know and we will train you so you can win. That's my philosophy. I tell people every chance I get, take your training seriously. Don't just show up and go through the motions. Get a good night's rest, eat breakfast, show up prepared, just like you would for work day, and come and give it your all. And you can teach and you can be taught. We can all benefit from from everybody in a training environment. I went to a defensive tactics class a few months ago, and the sheriff was there with us going through it and doing everything that we did. And I did everything that we did. And I feel like that's something else that's important. It doesn't really matter where you are in the rank structure. If you're too high up that you can't go to firearms or you you can't go to, you don't have time for defensive tactics, then you should probably retire. Because I've, I've heard people tell me, well, I'm a little, and I used to tell my wife this, tell, you tell your wife things, but I tell her, we, you know, I'm, I'm a lieutenant, honey, I'm not going to get into anything. I'll be okay. But that wasn't right. I still got into the, something that, you know, life or death situation. So I know, I know you, you would hear it a lot as a new officer, but there's two things that, that resound with me. One is an attitude. Attitude's the most important thing you can do. Pick a good one and have a, 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 an attitude where you have, you want to work hard, you want to train and, and you want to win. Pick a good attitude and then train like your life depends on it. Mine did. Mine did at least twice in my career, maybe more. And not only your life, but the life of others as well. Yeah, There are two things that he said right then. He used the word win twice in that little segment. I would like to point out that I'm not a big fan of the phrase officer survival because in my opinion, surviving isn't good enough. It's officer winning. And there's a difference between winning and surviving. 
And our guest today not only survived, but he won. And he won because he prepared himself properly. So, Andy, as, as we're wrapping things up, I want to say again how much I appreciate what you've done, your service. I appreciate the way that you have prepared your people and continue to prepare your people. And, and I appreciate from the bottom of my heart your willingness to come on and share your experiences so that hopefully others will hear this and they will learn from it. So if they're ever faced with the same thing that you were, that they win just like you did. So thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Happy to do it. Thanks for, thanks for thinking that it's uh, my time is worth it, that I can be beneficial to, to somebody listening. I hope I, I, I enjoy training, but I also enjoy the camaraderie with officers and deputies and with law enforcement all across the country. And, uh, it's been a feather in my cap to be able to meet you at our training and to continue the relationship now. I, I can't say enough about it. I'm, I'm going to share the podcast with my friends. I, I just think this is a great, a great resource and forum for, for people to, I have a commute. I have, I have like a 40 minute commute to work and home every day. And it's nice to be like, I listened to the podcast the other day and I thought this is great. And so I'm, I'm going to share it. I, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. A lot of this is it brings up memories of the past and, and it's still some of those emotions are raw. And uh, our, our intention is not to, to to bring those those memories back and, and that, that heartache back. But it's for you to tell your side of things and people to hear those stories and to learn from them. And Andy, you're incredibly open and authentic. And we appreciate you taking the time to, to share your stories with us. Thank you. And if, if you are listening today and you have a similar story, you have something that you want to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can always contact us to be a guest on Between the Lines of Virtual Academy. Our email address is between the lines at virtualacademy.com. An incredible episode today. It's one that I know Andy said he wasn't quite sure how it translated on a podcast, but I thought he did an incredible job of painting a picture that I could see things play out in my head as I was listening. Fantastic today. I, I, getting to meet people like this truly is the pinnacle of my job. So thank you again, Andy. I'm, I'm just I'm honored, to, honored to be on your program. Thank you. <laughs>